Welcome to the Digital Workplace Podcast. These are conversations with CEOs of digital companies, thought leaders, and solution providers about how you can become a level five digital workplace. For the show notes and transcript of this episode, go to thedigitalworkplace.com. Well, welcome back to the Digital Workplace Podcast. Today, our guest is Stephen Holper. He is the president of North America for Doc Air. Hey, Stephen, how's it going? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I am very excited to talk to you. You have a great journey to get into to kind of figure out where we are in this place of the digital workplace. But first, let's check to make sure you are a real live human. Stephen, your capture question is, when you were eight years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think I wanted to be an archaeologist, but not just any archaeologist, more like the Indiana Jones version. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> which is funny because I'm a friend of mine I met later in life actually went to school to be an archaeologist and and does professionally he's in software, but he actually does archaeology uh, digs on the side. <laughs> yeah. I knew one guy in, in college, I remember that was like going to do that. And it's like, you're just naturally cooler than everybody else because you're into archaeology, right? That seems fun to me. But it's got to be one of those fields that, like you're actually in it. And it's really just like brushing sand around, which doesn't sound that much fun. I, I think it's, it's like uh, if you work in sales, there's like when you're not selling something, it's kind of a drag. So maybe when you're not finding something, it's kind of a drag. But the second you sell something or find something that's ever been found before, it probably is super exciting if I had to guess. Yeah, probably. All right. Well, Stephen, tell us a little about Doc Air and yourself, kind of what's your, been your journey in the digital world? Sure. I have, uh, just, I'll start with me for a second. So I have about um, 19 years in digital health uh, and I've worked in all the industries uh, from employer to the hospital space, to the pharmaceutical space. And it's been, it's, a, it, it's an interesting uh, opportunity to see the industry from all around. So uh, DocCare, at, at DocCare, what we do is, so we exclusively, we're a digital marketing company, but we exclusively work uh, to match life sciences companies' messages with physicians and other prescribers. So nurse practitioners and, um, uh, physician's assistance, if you're not aware that they can prescribe as well. So what we do is broker messages like, you know, new product launches for pharmaceutical products or medical devices, whether they can be used for a new indication, whether they have clinical data. And really it's about kind of bridging the gap between um, life sciences companies and prescribers in a digital way. We've been talking to a few people in the healthcare field, someone who's been in the industry for a while, seeing things from a lot of different angles. How would you describe the changes that have happened over the last, let's just say, two decades of new digital things coming in? Do you feel like someone coming in as a like an objective observer would say, everything we did before, we're just doing faster now, or we're doing more digitally now, or things have improved, or things have gotten worse? Like, What's your take on that? Yeah, it's... It's, it's, I'm trying to figure out where to start because a lot of healthcare that we experience as consumers is about insurance. So yeah. if you go back 20 years, they had these concepts of HMOs. Oh, yeah. Would, yeah. So you would have to go to a primary care doctor and they would have to tell you where to go next. And they were the gatekeeper. And the theory behind that is they would help to control costs. Now, at that time, there wasn't like a ton of technology to help you find the right doctor or do telemedicine. That just wasn't there. So that industry kind of moved away from that model, sort of. And what you can see employers do right now is, especially during this course of the pandemic, they've been digitizing. So virtual primary care, virtual specialty care, 
uh, digital way to find a physician and figure out how much you're going to pay for that visit. Uh, they've been talking, you know, virtual second opinions. So they've been kind of spearheading this kind of augmentation of healthcare that they can control and provide an experience for their members. Now, over the course of 20 years, as you said, that, that's just that keeps getting better and better. So the employers who who's, who are responsible for most healthcare spending and the most people are actually doing a nice job of kind of making a good experience for their for their employees. Now, on the physician side of things or hospital side, they've been they've been slowly and surely getting digitized. So um, Obama had put some funding in place to get electronic me medical records and e-prescribing in place. So most of them have that. They're they're kind of at a tipping point where how do they change the experience for patients and physicians and other um, practitioners of medicine by kind of focusing on more user-centered design. So they're at a stage where they have digitization, they have their data sort of lined up. There's still a long way to go, but they're trying to figure out what it looks like to reach patients in a different way. And you'll see on, this, on the healthcare, the, the practice side, like small practice specialists or physicians, I mean, they have gone, they've embraced telemedicine because the laws have loosened up a little bit on state, state by state um, use of telemedicine and licensing. And we'll see what happens when the pandemic gets more under control. But my opinion on that, that's been a huge, um, although some people are not getting the services they would procedures that you have to go in person because there's a lot of deferred healthcare happening mm -hmm. right now that people may not, I'm sure as an individual, you know, you've put something off, but in mass people are putting back off treatment. And the saving grace here is the telemedicine providers. The telemedicine providers have allowed for access to physicians and other uh, healthcare workers that in a more easy way. Yeah. And that's been a huge convenience that I hope stays forever, quite frankly. Definitely. I think that's one of the best examples of a way that we've been able to embrace digital tools to take better advantage of better respect for time and just yeah. being able to, to treat people and, and to get in and to get around some other things. Yeah. I'll just say one thing very quickly on the pharmaceutical industry. So, so one of the disruptions there is that, you know, the pharmaceutical reps have not been able to get into physicians' practice because of the restrictions, especially like oncology where the patients are at high risk. So they've been trying to think through how they reach physicians in a digital way. That's another kind of big disruption that's happened as well. Definitely. Who do you think has benefited the most from digital changes in healthcare and who is really wishing we could go back to the way it used to be? That is a very difficult question. I would, I would hope <laughs> I <laughs> hope the answer is the patient benefits because at the end of the day, um, you know, that, that's why people are in healthcare to make sure that people and their caregivers like mom, dad, sister, brother are having a good experience. Now that that's what I hope the answer would be. I think the insurance companies right now, because of all that deferred care, are probably in a fairly good spot because a lot of care is not being used, so the costs are down on there. But I think the trickle onto that is when their costs are under control and you look at the hospitals and providers, they're not making as much money. So here's my fear. My fear is what happens after this passes? Are they going to do rate hikes? Are they going to be forced to consolidate? And that's going to cause price pressure. I don't know. Um, I think there is some degree of um, stress on the on the physician side because they they've had to change so much uh, they've probably adjusted to the digitization to some extent I think in the long run they'll actually see that they can see more patients 
by doing a hybrid model. And that'll be, you know, to their advantage at some point. Um, so, you know, each of the stakeholders has a different experience here. Um, the, only, the thing that I'd say is the saddest is that people that have deferred care for a while, especially with more serious things like, you know, cancer, that, you know, we're probably going to see a spike in that over the course of the next three to five years, uh, just because people hadn't been getting some uh, preventive procedures done over the course of this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, there's the natural or what's been happening in the digital world for several decades. And then there's like the last two years, which has been obviously like a totally separate story, but definitely related uh, yeah. to the same thing that's there. Uh, Stephen, let's talk a little bit about what you guys are doing inside your company. So tell us about, you could even go pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, kind of how that transition has been for you in terms of shifting your focus and the way you do digital work. Yeah. So pre-pandemic, I think uh, Dakar looked like a lot of other companies. So you have people, you know, we have people in India, we have people in Europe and UK, we have people in the United States. And the interesting thing about a global company is that, you know, you, you virtual is actually built into the way that you work right. uh, to start. But what, what you don't get as much before, it's more like physical, everyone's at a physical location, they're collaborating today, you know, in person, you know, that, that's kind of the pre-pandemic landscape. Now, in, in the during and after mode, it's, well, how do we virtualize to the extent that that's possible, keep the right controls in place to make sure if there are people that are considered business critical, that they're not infecting each other. And if they do, what controls are in place, like, you know, the social distances and masks and things like that. But in terms of the way we work, I mean, everyone here has embraced all we use you know, technology as everyone else does for video conferences and collaborating to the extent that that's possible. We try to do virtual brainstorming sessions, which in my sense, it does, my two cents, it does work pretty well. So really, I think the challenge we have um, is, you know, when you have people in an office now that everyone, so you and I right now, we have FaceTime. So mm -hmm. I can see you well, you can see me well, you can hear me well. My concern is always when you go back to the big conference rooms, I kind of have a camera in the corner of the room and the audio in the center. Um, and how do you actually do that? So sometimes we just don't go in the conference room. We stay in our individual spots so we can, you know, hear and see each other with the people that are virtual. Um, you know, other way, our other workaround is, okay, everyone bring your computer into the conference room and I won't, I will be unmuted. Everyone else mute. So we use the speaker of one uh, computer. I mean, it's the best we can do, but you know, to me, I, I, I more respect the FaceTime with people than I do kind of someone on the phone that I can't see and hear that well. I feel like meetings right now, especially these hybrid meetings we're trying to figure out, we are just hacking our way through this right now. I feel like in yeah. three years, we're going to be like, oh, thank God we're not doing that anymore. Because we will have developed either meeting rooms will get much more sophisticated. We will actually decide, okay, we need to invest some money and make a, a really nice room that has incredible audio that has incredible video experiences you can you can feel that a lot more so i, I hope that 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 is what's coming down the, the way but right now and even like i think what you guys are doing is probably best practice for right now which is everyone get on your own screen and so you can see each other and you can see those things there and like you said the worst thing is just when you have some like subpar audio and video that's on the side of the room you can't see people but you know i i will tell you from working in you know being in startups and being in large companies you know, I almost think in the big companies like IT and audiovisual or facilities, they're kind of different entities. So they really, 
for some reason, they haven't been able to find like the optimal way to cater to this new world. And even yep. before this, it was, you know, I, the audio visual was not great. And these are mm -hmm. companies that have a lot of money um, because you have to do it in a hundred rooms per location. It's not easy. It's not cheap. Yeah. There was one time I was in a, what they had a, they called a telepresence room, yes. which was, that, that was pretty cool. And this, this was, you know, maybe 10 years ago that, so that technology. Sure, they're expensive though. Yeah. There was one and like a huge. <laughs> That's the one where the camera like goes to the person who's talking. It's in the front of the room. That, yeah. It, it was cool. But like you said, like that was like only a few companies would ever be able to think about doing something like that. Yeah. Let's come back to brainstorming because I think that's an important topic and something that a lot of people will push back on and say, hey, there's just nothing like being in person because I feel like we can get the signals of video right now. I can see your face moving and, and we get that kind of feedback. But that energy is what we really need for that brainstorm. People will say we can't get that. So what's been your experience like in something like brainstorming? So I hear that a lot from senior leaders that are baby boomers in big companies. They swear by the fact that you have to be in, you know, these random encounters in the hallway happen. And that's where innovation and big ideas are born. You know, I've run innovation in two Fortune 50 companies. I don't, I actually don't agree with that. I think it's, you know, when you work in global companies, you're not going to have as much face-to-face -face time and you're not going to wait for innovation. So you have to figure out how to do it on the fly. You know, the energy comes from the people that are in the room talking and what leadership style you have at the top to say, hey, we're all welcome. We no, no ideas are um, stupid. You know, please just bring it out there. You know, there's kind of this, um, you know, when you there's a there's a way that you do ideation, which is like there's this concept of no buts. Don't you know, don't use the word. But. Just use the word end. If you just do that little thing and substitute it, it kind of allows for ideas to, to get better over time over multiple people. So, you know, my two cents is you can do it. There's there's enough tools, digital whiteboards, whatever it is, to, to either write or have multiple people write or, you know, you put boxes up or sticky notes that are virtual to make it happen um, I, I think part maybe what you're missing is like if you do a brainstorming session that is in person, it's the th stuff that happens afterward. With you, you know, do you go to dinner? Do you do a, a fun event? That is probably the team building aspect that you miss virtually. Uh, but yeah. I, also in the last year, I have seen some interesting thing where you know doing trivia online and you know um, those types of things have actually been pretty cool too. So there's companies that specialize in those type of digital events. So, I mean, my, my two cents is I think you can do, you can do it uh, wherever you are. It's just uh, whether your company kind of has the culture to make it happen. I feel like in many ways, not just in brainstorming, but in, in lots of, in culture and lots of different other ways, we expected the physical place to almost do the work for us. <laughs> and in the extent of like, if I'm a leader of a team and we're going to have a brainstorming session, like I don't have to prepare at all. I just walk into the room. Everyone's there. I grab the dry erase marker and just jump up there, put up a word. All right, what do we got? Right. I didn't have to prepare anything. Like it just, I'm, yeah. I'm expecting the room, the energy of the room, the people in there to supply everything that's needed. If you walk into a digital meeting like that, man, that, that's tough. That, you just hit a brick wall because no one's prepared. We're not, we don't have that, that feeling of what's going on. So I, I think you can prepare for those things. I think you can prep people to say, hey, here's what we're going to be talking about. Come up with ideas for this. Let this these thoughts be in your mind for a while. This is our agenda we're going to go through. 
I have the technology ready for these things like you talked about with digital whiteboarding and memos and things you can post, like all that stuff's available, but you have to prepare for it and you have to get ready for it too. Yeah, you're right. I think the when you let's take your example of the room. So it's funny, I you know, I don't want to sound hypocritical, but I literally have like a box of things for brainstorming sessions right over there in the corner and a puzzle right here on my desk for the reason that those types of things help stimulate ideas. Um, but I think when you bring up a physical room, you're right. The room becomes a framework in itself yeah. to an extent. Um, I'm pretty big on frameworks in terms of, you know, there's there's tools that you can use like a pains and gains analysis. That's a framework where you kind of develop a persona or have a persona or do some customer research before and figure out what the pains they have are and what, what your product could do to eliminate them, which would be called gains. So, there's frameworks you can use like that that are pretty systematic. It doesn't matter if you're on a whiteboard or a virtual whiteboard. They definitely work. Um, I mean, there's uh, there's also kind of concepts like design sprint. If you're if you're uh, if you're deliberate about the way you do innovation, I mean, you could do a design sprint, which is basically coming up with an idea, researching it, building a prototype, testing it with consumers, and then after a five day period, you have a working um, prototype that's been sort of validated. You can do that virtually. You, it's, you can do that in person too, uh, but it's possible to do. You just have to figure out how to make it work in the virtual world. Definitely. Uh, Steven, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume you're a Gen X guy. Am I close to the market? I am the oldest uh, millennial. <laughs> okay, you're, you're older millennial like myself. All right. So you, you mentioned baby boomers, people kind of pushing back on stuff like, hey, we got to do it this way. We are in this generation that like we saw a little bit of both. Like we, we've experienced work as it was. And we've also grown up and alongside some of these digital tools to see them develop as we've progressed in our careers too. And then you have these bookends of folks that are finishing their careers and are just saying like, I don't want to deal with all this stuff that's coming up. Let's just get back to the way it was. And you have another group of new people coming in that maybe this is their first job experience and it's all virtual and, and they don't know what it's like necessarily to be in an office all the time. How do you, especially as a president of an organization, how do you kind of navigate between those worlds and, and help people to see the best and to bridge those generations? So I think it's hard. Right now, it's especially hard because if you think about it, how many generations are in the workplace right now? There's more generations in the workplace today than there's ever been because, you know, quite frankly, the financial crisis kind of put many people in the baby boomer generation that they're deferring, they're working longer. In there lies an opportunity. I think having those multi-generations, you have these different perceptions or um, perspectives and different working styles. So, you know, I'm a big advocate of kind of the reverse mentoring, you know, whether you're more senior or junior in the organization. I mean, listen to the people that are more junior. If you're more senior, they have like they're continually learning new technical skills and new techniques. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, this, you know, frameworks, innovation frameworks, marketing frameworks, sales tactics, all of those things change and the technology has changed significantly. So to me, you know, if you treat the workplace as, you know, our employees represent these personas, which are of different generations and attitudes and backgrounds and everything, um, I think you get the best out of the team because everyone has different um, the skill sets that they're bringing to the table at that point. I, I mean, all of them. There's no there's no generation that's, you know, one thing I don't like hearing is, you know, oh, the millennials do this or, 
you know, Gen Z does this. I mean, they definitely have their own characteristics, but there's value to everything that each generation brings. And I think you'll see in the, you know, right now you'll see people like for me, someone who I grew up on the edge of the, had computer on the edge of the internet with a phone when I was not young, but kind of between college and high school and social media at the, at the end of college there, you kind of see the difference of having access to, to those tools because it reflects in your work. Yep. Um, I, I would say today the people coming up and going through college right now in this experience, they're going to have a very different way that they look at work and the way that they look at being virtual or where they work or how they work because they're going to be more tool driven. They're going to be more work anywhere driven. It's already happening. So um, there's a lot of good things to be had by kind of cha- uh, exchanging be- best practices between people in different groups. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, when it comes to uh, other issues we talk about on the show a lot, it, just in terms of race and gender, do you feel like the digital workplace we're creating, do you feel like we've done enough to make sure that this kind of digital divide that we're, we're seeing uh, among people who kind of already had advantages, already knew all this technology and are able to take advantage of that or whether their their family life or their their historical life uh, adds up to that. Basically, just some reflections from you on that side. I think you raise a really, really, really good point. So um, diversity, equity, inclusion right now is extraordinarily important and making teams, you know, my philosophy on this is being delivered about making teams that are diverse, that are inclusive, that have thought, you know, what's called neurodiversity as well as diversity of background. If you hire people from the same places, from the same background, from the same schools, from the same experiences, you get a lot of the same thing. So to me, when you look at that as an example, there are people that haven't grown up with, you know, broadband access is still an issue, believe it or not, in the rural areas. So those of us that are around urban, suburban areas take it, uh, like we take that for granted. But the reality is that is still a challenge. Access to schooling, the quality of schools. Are we doing enough? We are definitely not doing enough. I think that there's a delivered approach by large companies right now to make sure that, you know, everyone has a seat at the table. I have not seen it extended into technology training and, and things like that. I've seen nonprofits that focus on, you know, women or men of color in coding, for example, um, those types of organizations are where it's going to kind of be more of a grassroots and to the extent that large enterprises and even small ones partner with those organizations, you know, the better, the better acceleration we'll get on that topic for sure. Yeah. And where do you see the holes in the healthcare industry? So healthcare is not um, distinct from, you know, high tech, et cetera, because I I still think on the engineering side, um, there's a, there's, more room for improvement with the diversity of engineers in healthcare. Um, you know, you'll see uh, on the f- medical school physician side, there's still some growth area there as well. Um, but it's also making sure that people have access to, here's the little nuance on healthcare. It's just not technology. It's things like pharmacogenomic testing. So that's like how you test someone to figure out if they're going to um, respond to a drug negatively or positively. So those type of technologies, which are up and coming, um, you know, it's really up to the medical schools to say, are we teaching this? Are we teaching precision medicine or digital therapeutics? These are new things that are coming out. Have they made it into the curriculum? Is it 
known by nurses and nurse practitioners and physicians across the board. And I could say there's probably general awareness, but there isn't a, a ton of kind of specific knowledge on those new tools that are available uh, to, to reach patients in a different way. And, yep. and, and I will tell you, the socioeconomic status in healthcare is a huge indicator. And physicians and uh, practitioners that really pay attention to those factors are more successful um, hmm. in, in uh, connecting with their patients. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So there's things like, uh, I'll give you an example. So um, sometimes you see, if you go to a hospital emergency room, you'll see people that have diabetes and they have kind of some necrosis on their limbs, which is, it's not a good thing, but you know, what happens is they get treated and then they get bounced. So um, what's actually happening there in some cases is that that person has an underlying mental health condition. And if you keep kind of pulling on that thread, they have an underlying mental health condition like, does that have to do with because you're stressed, like your financial health is is teetering, so you are stressed and that creates a, a problem with alcohol or just stress and, or PTSD in general? It's following and going backwards to say, like, tell me more about yourself. Um, you know, what is your economic status? You know, what's your social situation? You know, even so far as, you know, do you have a community at church? Do you have a community at home? Is your family... Um, you know, is, is there a caregiver around? So it's kind of getting more into uh, the details of the person's lives. So, so a, a professional uh, healthcare practitioner can actually make a, a more sustainable impact. No, no, I love this. And thanks, Stephen, for exploring this topic, because I feel like when it comes to healthcare, like if we just give healthcare over the technology or just over to medicine, like we're kind of going to not end up where we want to be. But these things of like exploring about what it means to be in a community, what it means to be physically, emotionally, socially, financially healthy. Uh, those are big topics for sure. Yeah. Steven, thanks so much for being on the show. We appreciate you coming on and sharing what you've experienced, what you know, what you're in the middle of right now. Where should people go if they want to learn more about uh, you and your company? Sure. Thanks, Neil. Um, you can reach me at steven.holper at doccare.com uh, or on our website at doccare.com. Great. We'll, we'll put those links in the show notes. Steven, thanks so much. And we look forward to connecting with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Neil. Bye, everyone. This has been the Digital Workplace Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to leave a review wherever you find it. Go to thedigitalworkplace.com and sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. It keeps you up to date on the best ways to build a level 5 digital workplace. Music for the show is provided by City of Sound. I'm your host, Neil Miller. Keep moving forward.